What a parsimonious municipality. All of the residents with any sense agree. So we're here to tell the mayor you can take a hike. We're gonna go on strike. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. That's Dave Rovix with a song he wrote for members of the District Council of Trade Unions in Portland, Oregon, who are set to go out on strike on February 10th if they don't get a better offer from the city. Yesterday, as a bitter wind froze fingers holding picket signs, I joined dozens of workers and their supporters at Union Kitchen in downtown Washington, D.C., who are staging a two-day strike this weekend as they try to win recognition for their new union. It turns out Striketober was not just a one-off as workers across the country, fed up with years of low wages and lousy working conditions, are walking off the job just about every day now. Last fall, Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith headed over to the Amini Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park to check out a special exhibit put together to amplify the momentum of the current wave of labor strikes. In our first segment, they tour the exhibit with archive specialist Alan Weirdak, whose voice you may recognize from our Cool Things from the Media Archives series. The goal was really to use this as an opportunity for both the labor movement and the University of Maryland community to explore strike actions and labor history, really past and present. In the second half of the show, we welcome back a longtime contributor to Labor History Today, Dr. Eleanor Mahoney. Eleanor is the National Park Service Mellon Humanities Postdoctoral Fellow, History of Labor and Productivity, and she hosts the Ballot Blocked podcast, as we've seen so clearly in recent weeks here in Washington, D.C., there's a strong historical connection between voting rights and labor rights. And in this episode of Ballot Blocked, we learn about the barriers to voting faced by Mexican-American women and workers in the years after World War II. They were mothers, working-class women, and they stated that they wanted to vote so that farm workers could earn better wages. Plus, labor history in two from this date in 1910 and 1919. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. What a parsimonious municipality. All of the residents with any sense agree. So we're here to tell the mayor you can take a hike. We're gonna go on strike. Last fall, Patrick and I visited the strike exhibit at the Meany Archives in the Hornbake Library at University of Maryland. Alan and Ben, both archivists, as well as their student worker Mieko, all worked together on the exhibit that featured a really neat, diverse collection of different artifacts from various historical strikes. Before we were able to get into individual items, 
Alan gave us a brief overview of the exhibit, as well as the objective behind it that is still super relevant to today, as more workers continue to strike and unionize across the country. Alan, could you frame this exhibit for us a little bit? What are we looking at right now? Certainly. So uh, what you're looking at is a mini exhibit that is essentially crafted to capitalize on the uh, momentum built by workers on strike around the country and really around the world. More specifically, the exhibit is three cases inside the Maryland room, and it includes a lot of photos, different ephemera, some posters, some buttons, a flag, some picket signs, and then also we are using an iPad to include photos that weren't able to fit in the cases. And what was your goal when you started collecting this? So the goal was really to use this as an opportunity for both the labor movement and the University of Maryland community to explore strike actions and labor history, really past and present. I feel like a lot of, as I said, you know, a lot of momentum's been gained, and I think that this was a really good opportunity to use some of our AFL-CIO and bakery workers collections for students, faculty, staff, but also the labor movement to just come and see strikes from the past, photos from past picket lines, but also from the present. And Miyako, do you want to talk a little bit about how you gathered everything and what that process was like for you guys? Yeah, sure. So in terms of process, we started with, we knew we had a lot of like black and white strikes and pickets photos. So we started there um, and Al and I chose our own. We like made little folders of the ones that we liked the best. And in terms of like how we picked photos, we were just thinking in terms of what we found to be cool at first. Like it was, oh, what's interesting? What's like eye popping? And then we also wanted to make sure there was there's like a good representation of different types of labor unions. We also didn't want every photo to focus on all white people, basically. We wanted it to be more diverse. We wanted to show different types of people picketing. And also we wanted to show different stages of the um, process. So not just like people on the picket line, but also we have some where it's like they're counting up votes and people like eating together and things like that so to show that process that it's not just people standing outside and so yeah we started with those photos and then we thought broader about how we can make the exhibit pop more so what are the other types of diverse materials that we can bring in like posters and buttons and the shirts and things so we were just trying to think about again kind of what Alan was saying like how we can connect like the past and present and really just make it easy for someone to come in and understand strikes on an easier level. Speaking more directly to the process, as Mika was saying, we started with photographs. So we have four boxes in the AFL-CIO's photograph collection, and all four of those boxes are directly, they're called strikes and pickets. So there'll be strikes and pickets for specific unions. There'll also be folders for strikes and pickets for joint union activities. So essentially what we did is we just pulled all four of those boxes and we went folder to folder, looked at every single photo, and we just started pulling things. And then so we realized from there that we have a bunch of photos, but how good is an exhibit of only photos? So from there, we went to posters. So we have uh, the AFL-CIO also has a poster collection, and that's where a lot of these posters come from. And then from there, we focused on the buttons a little bit more. We also reached out to the AFL-CIO to see if we could get some present materials. And that's really like the process. And then we came down here, and to be honest, when we first started, a lot of this was just stuff in cases. 
really. And a shout out to our uh, curator of rare books, Amber Cole, who is not with us, for really helping turn some cool things in cases into an exhibit. A lot of these backings and stands and the kind of things that you don't necessarily think about that go into an exhibit worth a lot of things that Amber and also Ben really helped with because otherwise things would kind of just be laying flat in these cases. So that was kind of our process was starting with photos, moving to posters, shifting to buttons, incorporating present materials, and then using backings and stands to make everything pop in not necessarily a sequential way, but in focusing on more, I guess, the visually appealing side. Alan, can you talk to us about the bakery workers, how it's threaded throughout different cases and timelines in the exhibit? Absolutely. So we are fortunate enough to have the BCGTM records here. They were actually one of our first labor collections that came in before the AFL-CIO records. Um, What we have here is we have three signs from BCTGM Local 50G in Omaha, Nebraska that came to us from the Nebraska State AFL-CIO. And then we also have some photos that came to us from the AFL-CIO from BCGTM Local 42 on the recent Nabisco strike. And then speaking to more of the past side, we have a couple of photos from the Nabisco strike in Chicago. The photo is undated. It is from sometime in the 1960s. And then we also have a photo from the Durst Bakery Workers Strike in Savannah, Georgia in 1972. And interestingly, we actually, in the Bakery Workers Records, we found uh, a document connecting the strike photo to providing $300 in strike assistance to the workers on strike against uh, Durst Baking. So I think that's really a key way of connecting it, showing that it's just more than what you're on a picket line. I feel we often, we think about these things, class being performed in the workplace, class being performed when workers are most active. And I think that this kind of shows the internal side of strikes. And then for the, for the signs that we got, so we have three signs. Two of them are placed on mannequins. One is placed on a mannequin with the uh, Goon Squad t-shirt. And this one says, keep our jobs in America. It has an American flag right behind it. It says BCTGM Local 50G, Omaha, Nebraska. And then we have another sign also from the same local that says equal pay, equal benefits for all. And that is on the t-shirt for AK Steel. And the goal there was, I think Ben pointed it out as we were installing it. He said that it gave it a feel of a picket line. So those two are placed on mannequins. And then at on the wall behind one of the cases in the exhibit, we have a sign from that basically says it has the Kellogg symbol. And it says the symbol of corporate greed, uh, also from BCTG and Local 50G in Omaha. And that's sort of what we were trying to do with the exhibit is connect current strikes to past strikes whether it's the same union, whether it's the, uh, the same line of work, whatever it is to show that there's a past to everything that's going on in the present. I think one of the connections that I like is the connection of cats. You've got a small cat over here, employees of Sperry on strike. Local, it's, a, it's a cat with a sign around its neck saying that the cat, saying, supporting the strike. So we've got that. I'm not sure the year that is, but then over here in the next cabinet, We've got a sign from the bakery workers in Battle Creek, and it's Tony, the, a cartoon of Tony the Tiger on strike. He's absolutely ripped, and uh, the sign says Kellogg's on, and uh, I'm not sure if I can roll my R's well enough, but it's strike. <laughs> That's right. Working conditions in this facility 
have got so bad that even Tony's had it. And I think I mean, that's a very interesting connection because it does show the kind of the, the strength of the imagery because this cat for the Sperry strike, which is unfortunately undated and we don't have too much context on it, but it's a Sperry strike for local 450 for IUE for the CIO. So this would have been before the merger. And this cat is angry. This cat is raging. Not necessarily as jacked and ripped as our, I guess, Tony. But I'm sure it's as close as they could get to Tony without being sued. So yeah, that's a really interesting connection. I didn't even make that when we were first crafting the exhibit. What's coming up in a lot of, and we've got dozens of buttons here, and it is the sort of effective use of graphic design and graphic imagery, which in the sort of cartoon forms, I guess it's easy to print, it's easy to replicate, and... Yeah, and the sign itself, it just says, we stand with Battle Creek workers. It's from the Michigan AFL-CIO, and it says, fair wages, good benefits, and better working conditions. It's a sign very much, but it also identifies what the workers are fighting for, I think is, of course, a key component. But yeah, and I think speaking to the graphic side, at the end of the day, it's, it's an exhibit. You have to make it aesthetically appealing. You have to make it pop. And I think that a lot of these images, at least I hope, a lot of these images were able to do that. So this collection is really fascinating and this particular sign stood, stands out to me. In the sign we've got this long row of what look like riot cops with these big plastic shields and they've got these tough knee guards on and these helmets and the sign says stop AK Armco's war on steelworker families. So are these guys in the picture, are they the good guys? Are they the guys on strike? Or what's going on here? Okay, uh, Patrick, the these are the bad guys. Uh, these are professional strike breakers that I actually walked the picket line back during the AK Steel strike in Mansfield, Ohio. And it was a national strike at one of the plants is in Mansfield where uh, my mother lives. And so I was visiting her and then took an opportunity to walk the picket line and support the steel workers. So the, they use AK Steel, Armco Kawasaki Steel at that time was the name of the company they brought in during the strike it was a strike lockout they threatened to strike and then the company locked them out and so the company brought in strike breakers put them up at the local holiday end and so the steel workers were picketing trying to prevent the strike workers from coming into the plant and taking their jobs and they the company used these riot essentially riot equipped troops and they had Full, basically full body armor. They carried sidearms, Glock pistols, and the strikers told me they had automatic weapons in reserve. So they were very much trying to intimidate the strikers. In response, the strikers got video cameras and were videotaping them because the st professional strike breakers were trying to provoke the worker workers on the picket line so they could get arrested and discredit the strike. And at one point during the strike, the it's believed by the union, the company brought in instigators that claimed to be auto workers in solidarity that then instigated violence on the picket lines, which the company videotaped and then put on TV ads to try to discredit the union. But despite all that, the, the union fought on and was able to, even though they didn't really win the strike, but they got a lot of jobs reinstated and they were able to maintain the union to this day. So the company was unsuccessful in trying to destroy the union. Okay, so these aren't nice guys who took the wrong job. 
<laughs> no, was, a lot of them were uh, ex-cons, recruited out of the prisons. So they were tough guys that the company was trying to use. Against and this badge here, AK, we've got a badge, a button down here. So we call it a badge in England, but a button here, AK, no AK scabs. Is this from the same strike? Yes, that's right. And we do have the T-shirt um, from the strike also that is a black T-shirt. I actually wore this. It says, I walked the line for Local 169, which is the Mansfield, Ohio local. And this is a march in uh, Middletown, Ohio, from the Steelworker Union Hall there, where they had another AK plant to the corporate headquarters to protest the company's anti-union tactics. I see in the button here it says, USA, USWA Local 169, Families of Steel. Was it like a big sort of community movement? It really was because, like in Mansfield, that's the largest employer, or at that time was one of the largest employers, and still is one of the larger employers. Mm -hmm. And those workers in Mansfield were generations, three, four generations of steel workers. So it's a very tight-knit community around the steel mill. And I think that's why you had in their slogans and support was they emphasized families and the impact that trying to bring in the workers from outside the community to replace them was having a you know big impact on the families. So they've been able to survive despite all the other closings, but the number of employees has gone down about one-third what it used to be from about 1,500 to 500. And that's me. A lot of that is due to the, the technology. Automation. Yeah, exactly. But the community survives. And they run workers. and the plant's still there and it's still union. So many regards, it's a positive story. Yes, I think, to me, the key thing was definitely the company was out to destroy the union, completely break the union, and operate the plants as non-union. And AK was known, going back to, to Armco, was notoriously one of the most anti-union steel mm -hmm. companies, going back to the CIO days. And the fact they were able to maintain and defend the union... I, I wouldn't say it was like, it was definitely not an outright victory because there were a lot of concessions and that kind of thing. But the fact that the union was able to survive and they were able to defend the plant as a union plant was a big victory and has, you know, really ongoing advantages. Now another company's taken over, Cuyahoga Steel, and it's being trumpeted as one of the safest steel mills in the country now. Not only was Ben a wealth of knowledge, but some of the items exhibited came from his personal collection that were often accompanied by his own story. So Ben, can you tell us what we're looking at here? So we're looking at a, a blue t-shirt that says Goon Squad and has the logo of the Chicago Firefighters Local 2. And it's from a firefighter strike in the 1980s. And that's the term that Mayor Jane, uh, Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne called the firefighters when they went out on strike. So they, in some ways, took it as a badge of honor and created these t-shirts. I just came from a rally of the firefighters at the city hall in downtown Chicago, and basically a rank-and-file firefighter made these t-shirts and was handing them out from the trunk of his car. So I picked one up and put it on in, in solidarity with the, with the strikers. At that time, I was working at UPS and the Teamsters. It was a solidarity, labor solidarity effort. And the great thing is that this was an example across the country, cities were, were denying the right of firefighters to be recognized, the unions being recognized. So there were a series of strikes around the country that were successful in 
essentially defeating the city governments and their anti-union efforts. And that means today, firefighters generally across the country are organized. Before we left, two last buttons caught my eye, and Ben offered stories that connected their history to the modern restaurant and hotel workers Unite Here strike, as well as to the intersection of organizing, race, and labor. Well, I'm, I'm still curious about the don't sleep with J.P. Stevens button. So J.P. Stevens, one of the famous, is probably the most famous clothing workers, boycott. This was an effort to attempt to maintain the union plants in the South of J.P. Stevens. And the on the button, it's a blue button with white letters, says don't sleep with J.P. Stevens. That's because J.P. Stevens made sheets. Uh, that was one of their specialties. And so this button was in support of a boycott only of the company that was pressuring them for recognition of the union. And it lasted quite a few years. It was really an iconic effort by the, the Amalgamated Clothing Workers and uh, the AFL-CIO, a joint effort to try this idea of just using a boycott only to gain union recognition and, and maintain the union. It's interesting, the slogan more recently has been adopted by the hotel and restaurant workers, Unite Here, in their hotel strikes. And I know I was, when I worked in San Francisco, uh, I was on a picket line, I think it was in front of Marriott during uh, contract negotiations. And uh, no, I actually think it was an organizing drive. And the picket line was using that slogan to make a lot of noise and try to get the people out of the hotel to book another hotel. And that was their slogan, was don't sleep, I think it was don't sleep with Marriott. And uh, so it's been taken from the original J.P. Stevens strike and kind of modernized in the context of the hotel workers. It's a very eye-catching slogan. It also kind of, I think, harkens back to that, like sleeping with the bosses kind of thing, mm -hmm. and that we want to develop independent organizations so we don't have to kowtow to management and that kind of thing. So do you guys know anything about the strike against apartheid button? That, that was a button, one of my buttons. Oh, great. So we have a button here of the strike against apartheid for black workers' power with a black worker giving the black power uh, fist salute. And so this button was part of the ongoing campaign against apartheid that was supported by the AFL-CIO. We have actually in our YouTube channel picket line of the South African consulate around this campaign. And that button, I bought that as part of my involvement in the anti-apartheid struggle. And that was in particular trying to get college. This is when I was a college campus student way back at Hampshire College. And we had a five college committee in Amherst, Massachusetts to organize against apartheid and try to get all the five colleges to divest. And Hampshire had a very small endowment, and so we were successful at Hampshire for getting divestment. But we had a five-college occupation of Amherst College, and so we were trying to get Amherst, which had a huge endowment and a lot of investment in South Africa, to, to divest. And we actually occupied one of the buildings at Amherst, a five-college occupation. And it was part of very much student-supported divestment campaign. And we weren't successful at Amherst, and in fact, they later then expelled 22 of the leaders of the, in the summer when the students were gone that summer. This was, I think, 1979. And 
but what's great is that this was connected with a union campaign. There was a very public campaign to boycott, put a lot of pressure on different corporations to pull out of South Africa. And it did, it was a factor in the end of apartheid. Obviously, the ANC, the African National Congress, and um, was the key, but it was great to be able to do some real international solidarity around this. And it had, I think, a lot of, a big impact on students. And it was tied in the labor movement. There was a boycott that particularly was promoted by the United Mine Workers on a Shell Oil that had big investments in South Africa. There was a big campaign among the auto workers against General Motors, which also had big investments. It was a great example of where students organized on campuses and then the labor movement also organized to unite against apartheid. Mm -hmm. So how did you get organized between the college, the AFL, CIO, without, and I'm thinking like without the internet, how did how did you guys all communicate? How did you get organized? Telephone. Telephone? All telephone? Wow. Yeah, and we used to, we would make leaflets and Xerox them, basically, really? that wow. kind of thing. Yeah, there was no email back then. And we had organizing committees, like in, in our case, the five college coordinating committees. So mm-hmm. we were communicating across the different campuses and particularly trying to mobilize to support the stu- uh, students at Amherst. Mm-hmm which was, at Amherst, it was a black-led student movement. And we tried to do our best to prevent the students from being isolated and victimized. Unfortunately, in the end, we weren't able to do that. But I think that experience, though, taught us a lot about what it really means to support black liberation. So we didn't have social media. We didn't have that power. But I think what we did have, it was, I mean, a lot... I think the credit can go to the AFL-CIO of keeping the issue and black activists around the country, keeping that issue in the media so people would see it on TV and go, oh, yeah, we have to do something. Look how the conditions in South Africa are are just so horrendous. And so we didn't really get a lot of TV coverage in the student movement, but the labor movement got a little bit more, and particularly the campaigns against the corporations, and that made people aware. And then hopefully turning that awareness into actual activism is, you know, what we tried to do. Look at Reagan. Look at Reagan, and I know Thatcher didn't care, right? Absolutely not. (laughs) That was, they were in complete support of apartheid. I think they probably said some words about equality and that it'll be a long transition, that kind of thing, and that the, the people in South Africa aren't ready to rule, and that was a argument that we came across, which was ridiculous and very racist. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing that, that Reagan and Thatcher pushed. And of course, that went hand in hand with their anti-unionism and trying to break unions around the country. And of course, the anti-apartheid movement was led by Kasatu, the Congress of South African Unions. Mm-hmm. And so it was support for apartheid on their side, Reagan and Thatcher, went hand in hand with being anti-union and opposing the labor movement, which was really the backbone, or one of the big backbones, along with the ANC, of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa itself. And that was the vehicle. I actually have a T-shirt uh, in solidarity from Kasatu, and that's probably my favorite T-shirt because it, it reminds me of how hard the struggle is. And, and the South African labor movement today is really struggling with the impact of that increasing internationalization of capital since then. And, and so it's... As the movement said, you know, the struggle continues.
Thanks again to Alan, Ben, and Mieko. Although labor history can't always be as sexy as the BCTGM's Jack Tony the Tiger, they definitely created a truly fascinating exhibit that contained many connections to today's labor movement. To keep up to date on the Meany Archive's latest exhibits, check out their social media pages on Instagram and Twitter at UMDLMA. Thanks for listening. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1910. That was the day Philadelphia garment workers ended their strike in victory. The strike began just five days before Christmas. 7,000 young women walked out of area factories when they learned their shops were receiving orders from struck shops in New York City. Often referred to as the uprising of the 20,000, striking New York City garment workers had rocked the industry. The number of strikers in Philadelphia soon grew to over 15,000. The young women crafted their own set of demands. They wanted shorter work days, uniform wages, better pay, and union recognition. Close to 300 arrests were made in the first week of the strike alone. Labor leaders like Big Bill Haywood and Mother Jones addressed picketers, walked the lines, and offered financial support. Mother Jones declared, let us live together or starve together. We will let New York know that we can also fight. We will march up and down the streets of Philadelphia in solid ranks until victory is ours. Strikers marched throughout the area to call out workers in many of the smaller shops. Tragically, at least seven workers were killed and a dozen or more seriously injured in a fire at a smaller shop that continued to operate throughout the strike. When manufacturers agreed to some concessions but refused union recognition, the women would not settle, stating, quote, we will go back to work as union or starve. Historian Daniel Sidoric notes, the gains won demonstrated the resolute determination of the strikers to see their struggle through to victory, even in the defiance of union leaders when necessary, and to the amazement of almost all observers. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. Hello and welcome to Ballot Blocked, a history of women's fight to access the vote. I'm Eleanor Mahoney. In this series, we talk to historians and scholars to learn about women's path to the ballot. From the period of the Civil War, through the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, and the 2020 election. It's a story of courage and perseverance, of disappointments and hard-won victories. Some of the people you will hear about are well-known. Their names on monuments and memorials. Others may have received less recognition, but their achievements are no less impressive. The history of women's voting rights isn't a progressive or linear narrative. Passing legislation is only one step along the way to the ballot box. The laws have to be enforced, and that takes more organizing and more struggle. New barriers to voting access are still being created today. 100 years after the 19th Amendment barred states from denying the vote based on sex, the fight for social, economic, and political equality continues. Ballot Blocked explores how we got here and asks where we might be going next when it comes to voting rights. In 
In this episode, we learn more about the barriers to voting faced by Mexican-Americans in the years after World War II. As the anniversary of the 19th Amendment approached in 2020, news reports celebrated the event as a milestone in expanding voting access. Yet many women, especially women of color, remained disenfranchised for decades after the amendment's ratification. In Western states, Mexican-American women faced numerous obstacles in their attempts to vote. In Washington state, for example, some counties still required literacy tests even after they were supposed to be banned by the 1965 Voting Rights Act. English-only elections also continued to take place well into the 1970s. To learn more about this history and to understand how Mexican-Americans in Washington state challenged discriminatory laws, I talked to Dr. Josue Estrada. Dr. Estrada is a historian at the University of Washington. He studies the history of Latinx voting rights in the United States. He's also the director of Gear Up, a federally funded college readiness program for low-income students at Central Washington University in Ellensburg. Dr. Estrada told me that the epicenter of voting rights organizing wasn't in big cities like Seattle. Instead, it was in more rural areas like Yakima County, east of the Cascade Mountains. Mexican-Americans had been living in Yakima County for decades, but still faced significant challenges when it came to voting. Voter suppression was built into the system, as Dr. Estrada explains. Part of my study examines Mexican-American voter suppression in Washington and how the community challenged the state's literacy tests to be able to register and vote. And I'm also looking at how local politicians, institutions, and the legal court system responded to their movement. Now, the voting rights struggle here in Washington state was different than the South, and that's for many reasons. Um, it had to do with the fact that the Mexican-American community had unique challenges. It wasn't just English literacy tests that blocked them from the ballot, but also English-only elections. And so the Mexican-American movement to further democratize the state does begin in Yakima County, and it's located about two and a half hours east of Seattle. Mexicans and Mexican-Americans made their way to Yakima County throughout the 20th century. They were hired by growers who needed labor for their farms. Many came to the region as guest workers through the Bracero program. It was a mid-century initiative that allowed farms to employ men from Mexico on temporary contracts to make up for the World War II labor shortage. Growers in Washington also recruited Mexican-Americans from other states to come to the Pacific Northwest to harvest crops. By the 1960s, Mexican-Americans made up a little less than 10% of Yakima County's population. In interviews conducted by Dr. Estrada, community members recalled the discrimination they faced before and after coming to Washington State. I had the opportunity to interview folks that uh, specifically came or recruited from Texas to come into Washington State. And the, what they let me know was that they experienced less discrimination in uh, Washington State than they did in Texas. Now, they didn't, they didn't say, hey, everything was great here in Washington State, but certainly the overt racism was, was less, but they continued to experience different challenges um, you know, in, in, in the community. 
you know, at one point I interviewed one individual who did see that there were signs posted here throughout the Yakima Valley. He said, no Mexican, no, no, no Mexicans, no dogs allowed here in the area. So there wasn't, um, there was certainly racism and discrimination, but at the same time, you had these growers that wanted to bring these folks into this area. So they created at least, um, a space for them to feel a sense of, of, of community and feel welcomed in, in this in, in this place. Um, and then there was other institutions, of course, that um, helped to transition them into this space. And one of those was, was the Catholic Church. You know, they had they were able to have um, Spanish-speaking pr priests give mass, and um, you know, we can see through the church records that. After the 1960s, most people were baptizing their, their children and, and creating uh, the and and uh, we see the growth of communities there. The arrival of growing numbers of Mexican Americans in Yakima County coincided with significant changes to federal election laws in the United States. Congress passed and President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, or VRA, into law in 1965. The VRA's primary purpose was to address the systemic and oftentimes violent disenfranchisement of African-American voters in the South. In other regions of the country, though, its immediate effects were more limited, including in the Pacific Northwest. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was a significant civil rights law. Now, the legislation temporarily suspended literacy tests. It prohibited the enforcement of new voting rules without preclearance from the federal government, and also allowed for the appointment of examiners to ensure that persons could register and vote without issue. Now, for Mexican-Americans in the American West, however, it was powerless to protect them. This was because the safeguards of the Voting Rights Act were largely limited to six Deep South states and focused on African-Americans who were subject to Jim Crow segregation and discriminatory voting restrictions, including literacy tests. Now, Washington state was not included under the coverage of the Voting Rights Act because of the trigger formula. Dr. Estrada's last point is important. When the Voting Rights Act became law in 1965, it included a provision, section four, which is sometimes called the trigger formula or coverage formula. The provision applied to jurisdictions that maintained a test or device as part of their voting processes. For example, a requirement to pass a literacy test prior to casting a ballot. The Voting Rights Act suspended such tests, but with an important caveat. The law's protections would only be applied or triggered in places where voter turnout was under 50% in the last general election or where less than 50% of persons of voting age were registered to vote. Neither of these conditions were present in Yakima County. So that left disenfranchised Mexican-American voters with little recourse when it came to challenging discrimination at the polls. And in 1964, uh, we see that 64% of the county's population voted, so the law didn't apply here in Washington state. Uh, but it didn't stop Mexican-Americans from trying to file a lawsuit against the county to enforce the Voting Rights Act. The United States Census also wasn't tracking the number of 
Spanish-speaking, Latino, Mexican-American voters at this time. So uh, there was no data to say, like, these people are being denied the vote. But when we, we look at the historical record and we look at this lawsuit that was filed, absolutely, people were being disenfranchised uh, using the state's literacy test. Washington's literacy test, it wasn't exceptional. It was really used to target uh, non-white voters. Uh, and Washington's literacy test was essentially you had to be able to speak English and read English. And that was it. And so who administered the test? It was usually the county clerks. And the count, you would see the county clerk when you would go to City Hall and pay your bill. So that was the, the person, the, the gatekeeper, so to speak. In total, I believe there was about uh, around 20 states in, in, in the country that had English literacy tests. Uh, in the American West, there were four states that, that had uh, literacy tests. Uh, and in the, along the Eastern coast, there were a number of states that had English literacy tests. And they were essentially adopted to, in, in the Northeast to um, kind of restrict the participation of immigrants that were arriving there in, in the East Coast. And then the South, they were absolutely being used to target and disenfranchise African-Americans. In the American West, a little differently, they were initially used to target um, Chinese and indigenous people. But then as we, our stories, uh, as we see in our story, they were uh, repurposed to attack uh, Mexican-Americans. Because of the requirements of the coverage or trigger formula, the Voting Rights Act didn't protect Mexican-American voters in Washington state from literacy tests. The law only banned literacy tests in places where voter suppression could be documented at higher rates. Puerto Rican organizers in the Northeast fought successfully for an exception to the law for people educated in Spanish at schools in Puerto Rico. But that exception didn't apply to Spanish-speaking voters with a Mexican background, as Dr. Estrada explained. Later in the 1960s, though, Mexican-American organizers were able to gain momentum in their efforts to challenge voter suppression in Washington state. Two groups that played a key role in these efforts were the United Farm Workers Union and the Mexican-American Federation. A number of factors are going to align that are gonna move the Mexican-Americans to revolt against these liter literacy tests, the white local establishment, and they're gonna demand that they wanna be recognized as integral citizens of Washington state. And in this year, 1967, we see the formation of the Mexican-American Federation and also the United Farm Workers Union. And they're founded to uh, politically mobilize the Mexican-American community. Now, the Mexican-American Federation, they're going to encourage Mexican-Americans to vote, to run for elected office, and take a stand on political issues to influence local and state governments. A top priority for them is going to be that they want to register all Mexican-American people eligible to vote in the state. And the epicenter of this voter registration effort is going to be Yakima County. Mm -hmm. And the Mexican-American Federation estimates that they're going to be able to register about 4,000 people. Now, on the other hand, the Washington's United Farm Workers Union, uh, they are organized or they're working there in the Yakima Valley to unionize labor, laborers. They want to improve uh, 
the health and living conditions of folks. And they're also there to provide legal help to farm workers. And they're going to recruit the assistance of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. So it's it's a fascinating time. So you have the Mexican American uh, Mexican American Fo- uh, Federation is attempting to register uh, folks, and they come to find out the Mexican Americans are being asked if they can read and speak English. Now, while there are some that are able to speak English, others have trouble reading the language, and these folks are not going to be allowed to register. And they also observe that there's people who can't speak English, and these folks are immediately turned away. The number of Mexican-Americans registered to vote in Yakima County got a boost from the combined efforts of the ACLU, Mexican-American Federation, and the United Farm Workers Union. But the total remained suppressed, largely owing to literacy tests. The practice of requiring such tests wasn't new in 1968, but the willingness of activists and community members to challenge their continued use marked a significant turning point. In 1968, what ends up happening is that in in early 1968, the Mexican-American Federation, they're going to set up a meeting with the Yakima County Auditor, uh, Eugene Naff, and they're going to request that he appoint Spanish-speaking registrars to help people register to vote. They explain that women and men attempting to register are United States citizens and that the Voting Rights Act has outlawed literacy tests. Uh, NAP is going to find out that Washington's uh, exam has not been banned, and so he refuses to make any changes. Um, you know, uh, one of his reasons for denying the appointment of Spanish-speaking registrars is because he believes that it's going to privilege Spanish-speaking Americans. And if you appoint Spanish-speaking Americans, well, next thing you're going to have is the Filipinos, the indigenous people, the Chinese. They're going to want their own registrar. So he's uh, dead set on not appointing any uh, Spanish-speaking registrars. So it's at this point where the Mexican-American Federation, they're going to reach out to the United Farm Workers Union, who's also working there in the Yakima Valley, and they're going to uh, connect them with the ACLU, who's going to file a lawsuit against the county. They're going to make the case, the Mexican-American Federation and its plaintiffs will make the case that Mexican-Americans are being racially discriminated against and are being deprived of their right to vote in violation of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, the outcome is, is not going to be good. You know, <laughs> on after a year uh, of litigation, 1960 and on May 1969, a three-panel judge, uh, in their opinion to the court, ruled against the plaintiffs and the Mexican American Federation. The judges are going to collectively agree that a simple inquiry uh, on the registration form, can you speak and read English, is not a test and could not conceivably result in discriminatory practices. And that is the, the, the ruling that they, they uh, c- come up with. The 1969 ruling was a bitter disappointment, but it did not stop efforts to end voter suppression in Yakima County. Lawyers for the ACLU plan to challenge the judgment, taking the case all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. In the end, though, Congress would act first, 
banning literacy tests across the country in 1970. After the decision comes down, the ACLU, they're ready to file uh, a landmark lawsuit to make the case that Mexican-Americans are being discriminated against um, as it, and they're going to make a case against English literacy tests. But as they're gathering their evidence, they begin to also work and, and make connections with uh, uh, MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal uh, Legal Defense and Education Fund, and they're going to reach out to their lawyers and say, hey, we have a case here that can potentially be a Supreme Court decision that's mm -hmm. going to include Mexican-Americans. But what ends up happening is that in 1970, the Voting Rights Act is renewed for an additional five years, and it's going to ban literacy tests throughout the country. Large organizations like the United Farm Workers, the Mexican-American Federation, and the ACLU played a role in fighting voter suppression in Washington state. But it also took individual acts of courage to bring the injustices to light. Mexican-American women, in particular, helped lead the campaign to abolish literacy tests in Yakima County. Fifty years had passed since the 19th Amendment became law, but its full promise had yet to be realized. So Mexican-American women were important leaders in the fight for voting rights and to further democratize Washington state. You know, while the 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote, uh, Mexican women who had limited English skills continued to be denied this right. And, but there were women such as uh, Jenny Marin and Marta Cantu who wanted to register and vote and joined this struggle here in Washington state. And they added their names to the lawsuit against Yakima County. They were mothers, working class women, and they stated that they wanted to vote so that farm workers could earn better wages. And they used interpreters, you know, uh, well, using interpreters, these women explained that they came from migrant farm working backgrounds. And so their families traveled uh, throughout the country constantly, and it certainly affected their ability to stay in school and improve their English skills. Uh, Marta Cantu said, for example, in her deposition statement that her family traveled uh, to Illinois, Michigan, and different parts of, of the Pacific Northwest. And then I also found uh, Jenny Marin's testimony to be very powerful as she demanded the right to vote uh, and he, she used her identity uh, as a mother whose son had served four years in the Navy. You know, she was getting across this fact that, you know, she could send her son to war, but she herself was unable to vote. It's also important to note that these were um, brave women. They risk being ostracized by their community members who maybe didn't agree with the Mexican-American uh, Federation lawsuit. And they also might be turned away uh, by employers for joining the suit. And so there was also uh, that, that, that level of potential retaliation that these women faced uh, as well. The nationwide elimination of literacy tests in 1970 marked a significant victory in the fight for voting rights. But it didn't mean that the struggle was over for Mexican-Americans in Washington state. 
For example, English-only ballots continue to be the norm in many jurisdictions, limiting access and participation. We talked about how after 1970, the Voting Rights Act was renewed. That particular law in 1970, when it was renewed, it banned English literacy tests throughout the country, right? Uh, but there was other factors that continued to uh, be used to deny Mexican American Mexican Americans the ballot. Uh, and after the lawsuit, what we find out is also is that the Mexican American Federation also ceased to exist, and the United Farm Workers Union they continued to help to register people to vote, but their resources were limited. And then states and counties they also didn't they weren't required to provide Spanish language assistance. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about you know that during this time. Uh, the United States Census had not started to collect voting data on Mexican Americans, so it was difficult to track if their numbers had increased after 1970. But what I did is I looked at the county's candidacy filing records, and I also didn't see any upsurge in the number of Spanish surname people running uh, for office. Uh, so it's likely that the number of uh, registered voters didn't significantly increase after 1970. Now, in 1975, uh, the Voting Rights Act's protections were extended to Latinos, and certain counties needed to provide multilingual uh, uh, ballots. But in Yakima County, the, you know, this after 1975, the struggle still continued there, uh, and in 2012. Uh, Mexican-American residents there uh, in the county's largest city, Yakima, Washington, they filed a lawsuit challenging its at-large election systems. And this lawsuit forced the city to create seven single-member voting districts. And this was the catalyst for a historic election that got three Latinas elected to the city council uh, for the first time, um, and this was in 2015. And one of those Latinas was uh, elected as the mayor uh, of the city. So it, it was an incredible, uh, an incredible feat. And it was, um, you know, it was as a result of the Voting Rights Act, you know, because the lawsuit, again, used the Voting Rights Act to challenge these uh, at-large election schemes were, which were uh, denying or which were suppressing the Latino vote there in Yakima County. The history of voting rights in the United States doesn't always follow a straight path. Access expands in one place or for one group only to contract for others. The experiences of Mexican-Americans in the Pacific Northwest reflects this fitful pattern, as Dr. Estrada's research demonstrates. If we look at voting rights histories, they tend to be um, uh, kind of chart a progressive narrative of the franchise continues to get widened and, and we're, we're headed towards universal suffrage. But when we dig deeper and examine the history, say, for example, of Latino voter suppression, we see that that happens in fits and starts. And it's, it's as a result of people mobilizing to enforce these regulations or to broaden uh, civil rights legislation that um, 
that is so critical to uh, making the vote accessible to everyone. And in this particular case, what we see is that Mexican-Americans in Washington state were really exposing the limits of the Voting Rights Act. It was really tailored toward African-Americans, but they're saying, hold on a second, we're also being denied the right to vote, uh, but our challenges are, are, are unique. Um, and I think this is what the, the benefit of studying the history of uh, Latino voter suppression is in Washington state, is we see that literacy tests, just one device, was not a region or race-specific tool to restrict the franchise. In the Pacific Northwest, they were enforced to limit non-white voters' access to the ballot. Um, and, and, and like I said, they're again exposing, the, this movement exposed those limits of the Voting Rights Act. And Mexican-Americans in, in Washington state were making the case that they were also being discriminated. And I think the the, the the big thing that I see is that their movement then sparks a national movement to broaden the coverage of the Voting Rights Act, and this happens in 1975. Yeah, I think uh, political scientists have examined uh, Latinx voter turnout, and you know they continue to explain that their numbers are lower than whites and African Americans, and they cite that a large number are not naturalized, that many are undocumented, and voter apathy to explain this phenomenon. But what my work does is I make the case that Mexican-American voter suppression must be understood within a historical context, and that national, state, and local factors need to be considered to more fully understand a Latinx voter turnout. So you have one in one case where... Um, there in Yakima County, beginning in the 1960s, they've been struggling to participate, engage, and be part of the electoral, electoral system there. But you had one barrier that set up, and that was literacy tests. And then after that is, is eliminated, then you have English-only elections, and then no access to Spanish language ballots. And then, then you have... Uh, at large elections and then redistricting, uh, redistricting, which continue to limit their access to the ballot. So unless we can take into account these factors, we're gonna continue to see that those numbers are lower than whites and African-Americans, but not take into account the systemic factors that have led up to this, the lower voter turnout. It took 50 years for the promises of the Voting Rights Act to fully reach Yakima County. And in the end, it was by way of a pragmatic reform forced by a lawsuit, ending at-large elections for city council seats. After the change was put into effect, three Latinas took office, and the city council started to look a lot more like the city it represents. Dr. Estrada's research demonstrates that voting rights legislation is often a midpoint in the fight for ballot access rather than the final destination. Laws have to be interpreted and enforced at all levels of government, a process that takes time, effort, and education. The history of the 19th Amendment demonstrates this all too well, with many women, especially women of color, denied suffrage long after its ratification. Ballot Blocked is produced and hosted by me, Eleanor Mahoney. Dr. Sylvia Hollis conducted research and interviews and helped plan this podcast. 
Drew Himmelstein is our producer and editor. Our music is by Poddington Bear. This project was made possible through the National Park Service in part by a grant from the National Park Foundation and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1919, marking the first day of the week-long general strike in Seattle, Washington. As World War I drew to a close, many workers in the city were frustrated by two years without pay increases due to the war. They expected to see raises once the fighting ended. The Workers' Metal Trades Council proposed modest wage increases, with management refusing to negotiate. The strike was called after a telegram destined for the employer's Metal Trades Association was mistakenly delivered to the Workers' Metal Trades Council. In the telegram, Charles Paez, head of the federal government-funded Emergency Fleet Corporation, threatened shipyard owners that any increase in wages could cost them future federal contracts. In late January, 35,000 of the angry shipyard workers walked off the job. Workers from most of the 110 union locals across the city voted to support the general strike. At 10 a.m. on this day, the citywide strike began. As many as 65,000 workers, or one-fifth of the entire workforce of the city, went on strike. Work in the city ground to a halt. Although the strike was well-organized and orderly, the mayor of Seattle marshaled both the police and military to use against the striking workers. The Seattle and national press blamed the strike on Bolshevik influences. Some of the unions worried that a general strike was too radical and feared it would ultimately hurt their future organizing efforts. They ended their participation under heavy pressure from the National Office of the American Federation of Labor. Federal agents closed the union record, the city's labor newspaper. 39 international workers of the world were arrested as ringleaders of anarchy and blamed for the strike. The Seattle general strike demonstrates how anti-communist hysteria took its toll on labor solidarity. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Here in Portland, Oregon, you can hear a lot of talk about social justice. But walking the walk seems more complex. It just sputters and stalls. Time to tell City Hall what a That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to Dr. Eleanor Mahoney, the Ballot Blocked Podcast and the National Park Service. Our music today was City Workers' Strike Song by Dave Rovics. You'll find more of his great music at Dave Rovics. That's Dave, D-A-V-E. R-O-V-I-C-S dot com. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. 
The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. We're gonna go on strike. We're gonna-